Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with his former Cincinnati Reds teammate, Eric Davis. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boom Podcast. Today on the program, we welcome one of the most exciting players to ever do it. He's a two-time All-Star, three-time Gold Glover. He's a member of the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame and a 1990 World Champion. Ladies and gentlemen, Eric Davis. Boogie, what's going on? Oni, 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 what's happening, man? I'm glad to be a part of this. Thanks for inviting me. How you doing, man? I'm doing good, and... and uh, all right, right off the top, I want to get it out of the way. All of us have uh, people out there listening to the Boone podcast. You saw how Eric said, Booney, Ooney. That's his nickname for me. A lot of times I was out there, you know, most people call me Booney, the Boone, whatever. But nicknames are kind of a big deal, in, in, especially in our world, the world of baseball. And the, the gentleman on the show today has got two pretty cool ones. Boogie and Eric the Red. Eric, I want to know where those two originated from. Where did they? Where? How'd you get? How'd you get that put on you? Well, first one, the one came from Chris Berman, which was huge because you know the early '80s when he first started ESPN and started doing the highlights, he had nicknames for everybody, and they kind of became his trademark. And so to to get a nickname from Chris Berman. On the positive side, you know, that means that you was stepping up your game and you was part of that upper echelon or something. Because if he just said your regular name, you just hadn't gotten there yet. So I, he told me when I actually talked to him that he didn't know too much that was going to rhyme with me outside of Eric the Red. And, and it was also the epitome for me because of so many great players that wore that uniform for me to be saddled with that was like an honor. Uh, Boogie was just a part of my, my, Fun, lively attitude and and uh, liking music and liking the dance. And when we used to go out, I was I used to break dance and do a lot of different things and stuff. So just Boogie just kind of stuck and guys just stuck with it. So I've, I've kind of adopted it. So both of them was on a positive tip, so it was good. Yeah, being Eric to Red, that is cool to this day. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty uh... – you know, high profile franchise, Cincinnati Reds. And, and you can always walk around and say, yeah, I'm Eric the Red. So that's, that's, that's <laughs> I'm Eric the Red, baby. That's pretty cool. It's not the same when you call you call it yourself. It's like you giving yourself a nickname. I mean, if you give yourself a nickname, I mean, you was really trying hard. Nobody didn't know you if you had to give yourself a nickname. No, no, that's no fun. <laughs> that's no fun. All right. So you're born and raised in L.A., Grew up playing hoops with Byron Scott, and, you know, it's kind of well-documented. Your buddy was uh, Daryl Strawberry. Tell me about Eric Davis's childhood. I had a, a, a good childhood uh, in the 60s. Uh, growing up in the 60s and the 70s in Los Angeles was uh, different. My, my parents were from Mississippi, so growing up in the South was different from them. For us, and that was one of their dreams was to move from the South and all the racial hurt, hatred and things that was going on down there to California, where where you can kind of be 
out there and things were just what they were and 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 the racism wasn't as documented on the coast uh in the 60s marijuana was the thing and it calms you down and you had the uh the kind of stoners and and all of that stuff out there with the palm trees and so we did what we did we didn't have a lot but we had what we needed um gangs and drugs uh that was there and and and, and sports was a safe haven uh, in the 70s and the 80s, sports guys who play sports in the predominantly black neighborhoods was respected. And it was kind of like you was off limits to certain things, uh, cultural wise and stuff. Uh, and, and so it, it kind of enabled you to get a pass and move your direction because you wanted to be something. So doing that and playing along with, 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 uh, Chris Brown, who was also on our county Mac team. And, and Goodell Strawberry, off our kind of Mac team, we had 19 guys that get drafted. So, you know, the Southern California was a haven for baseball players and stuff. So growing up with that and playing basketball, uh, sports was a way of life. And, and, and it helped to me make an easy decision. And, and I'm glad I did. Boogie, so I'm going through, you know, because, you know, you we know each other as players, but now – I do research, even on my buddies that I played with. And I was going over your your high school stats, and I got a young son that just went off to his first spring training. I took him to the airport this morning. And I was rolling off some – I said, you know who Eric Davis is? Yeah, Dad. I said, okay. You know, we were teammates in 96 in Cincinnati, and I said, I'm going over his high school stats right now. I said – he played 15 games his senior year in high school. That was a high school league. I said, guess how many bags he stole? He kind of threw out a number. I said, he stole 50. You realize that's three and a third bags per game. That means he's stealing second and third twice per game. And yeah. then I look, and, and you're averaging 29 points and 10 assists on the basketball court. And I know that you wanted to play in the NBA as a young man. What changed? Well, that was my dream when I got to be older. I wasn't a kid that dreamt when he was five with the ball in the bed, all that kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying? Because uh, some people had that childhood that wasn't mine. But Walt Frazier was my idol um, with the New York Knicks because of his pizzazz, his style. Uh, uh, his nickname was Clyde. He was smooth. Uh, he dressed really well. Uh Baseball, you didn't see him uh, because it wasn't televised a lot. And the only black players there in the L.A. then were the Dodgers. And and they were cool, but they wasn't that cool. You know what I mean? <laughs> Clyde had the, had the big afro with the, the Barcelinos and the Monks, the long fur coach. He was driving a Bentley. At, Rolls Royces before that, and, and and so that was 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 the excitement, and that's what I gravitated to. Um, and and basketball, I, I was playing basketball. We were doing our thing, and the and the college scholarships and all those things was there. But baseball preceded that season, so now I was able to generate a lot more momentum from the baseball side. And I tell people to, to all of this all the time, only that had I graduated high school after basketball season, I would have went to college just because I was in that frame of mind. And, and so once I 
graduated the draft and I graduated, it was right there for me. And I said, well, you know, I can always, I always got four years of eligibility. So if this doesn't work out, then I can always go back and play college basketball. But I kind of would have not forgave myself if I didn't give it that opportunity then because I was at the height of my game at that time. I was playing well. All the excitement and everything was going on, the draft and all those things and stuff. So I made the decision. But it could have easily been basketball had I graduated after uh, basketball season or it would have been the last sport for me to play for that year. Yeah, and recently on the podcast, we had Richie Sexton. And uh, he, he, he was he came from a similar mind frame as you is is he wanted to be a hoopster and he ended up signing baseball. As he said, he went out that first that first year and had a really tough time baseball wise, but he knew he could go home. Uh, he registered at the JC to, to chase that hoop dream. And and he said something clicked. He got invited to instructional ball and he, he continued on with his baseball career. And, you know, the rest is history for him. But it's interesting, uh, you know, because a guy like me, I didn't have the two options. You know, I was a baseball player and that's what I was doing. So uh, it, it's it's interesting to me to hear that side of it. So in 1980. It was crazy, though, boy. Let me just explain this to you. It was you crazy it. because. Basketball, the excitement of basketball, it's, it's like no other. And, and the fans are right there. And when you're doing your thing and, and, and the girls is there and the cheerleaders, ain't no cheerleaders for baseball. Nobody go to baseball games in high school. If there is, it's your brother or your parent or somebody, you know, showing the support. Right. So you just didn't get the, 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 the glamour and all the things behind high school sports. And for me, high school sports, high school sports was it. If you didn't have fun in high school, you, I don't know what, what what school you went to, or you must have had no friends. But that would all the games were sold out because we had a top team in the city. And and the, if you didn't get there for the junior varsity game, you didn't get there to watch the varsity games. And I played varsity for three years. But just the excitement and the and the and the atmosphere behind that and dunking on somebody in the crowd, going and all that stuff. That's what really pushed me to to want to continue to play. But when baseball gave me that opportunity and then I was able to display some of my basketball skills on the baseball side of it, that's what really took me to the next level. You think basketball helped you in your in uh, your baseball career? Absolutely. Uh, I got recruited to high school to play football. I didn't even know I played basketball and baseball. So each sport that I played gave me something that the other sport didn't have. I mean, I got my physical toughness from playing football. I played wide receiver, cornerback, and ran back punt. So I didn't mind taking punishment. That's why I had a high pain tolerance when I got hurt. I played. Uh, but then the quickness of my back came from me being a point guard and dribbling and having strong hands and wrists. Uh, stealing bases and my agility came from playing defense and being able to run the court and slide my feet uh, from a defensive position. So that. You don't have to be great at it, but I suggest every every young kid that has a sports uh, admiration to play something else, do something different that will give you something that the sport doesn't have because it definitely helped me. Yeah, and I and I uh, you know I tell kids that nowadays. I said, play them all. You know, you're only a kid once, and I think it does help you in the other sports. I think if for 
for anything, I, you see kids, especially today, 2021. I mean, these kids are coming out at 12 and 13 and they're just specializing and it's just baseball, baseball. And we've got, you know, we got swing coaches and we've got this and that. And these right. kids never really, you know, in, in my opinion, they don't have time to take a breath and just enjoy being a kid. It's nice when, oh man, finally, I was getting kind of burnt out on baseball. It's football season. You know, you get your mind off. And like you said, it's a different skill set. But but it tr- I think sports, especially the big three sports, they transcend one another. One always you can always find something in one that translates to right. the other and makes you a better right. player. I, I think that's a great point that you bring up. It, and I'd like to see our youth get back to that, you know, play them all, figure out what you love the most. But in the end, each one's going to help you be better at the other, if that makes sense. But it's crazy because what I see now is is the driver of the children's train are the parents now. And and knowing you come from a family of of great players, and my question to you was, were you driven to play or did Bob allow you to do your thing and figure out what you wanted to do? Because that's important because I know you guys had a love for the game and that love, it can be – Hand it down, but it still has to burn from self. You know what I mean? But and yeah. and and having gone through that history-wise, how did that translate with you guys? And did your parents allow you to to, to find what you wanted to do, or was you just like, "I'm going to do this because my dad"? Well, I'll tell you, it was. Uh... You know, and, and, and obviously my, my family is a, a little bit different because there were so many baseball players and, and, a mm-hmm. big influ- and a big influence on me, especially early in my childhood, was my grandpa, Grandpa Ray. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. because my dad got uh, my dad had me got married at a young age, had me when he was at Stanford, still in college. And then, you know how it is once you go to the minor leagues, him and mom are mm-hmm. kind of going here and going there. I spent a lot of time with my grandpa as a young, right. young man. And I remember kind of vividly waking grandpa up at, you know, when I'm two years old at, at six in the morning with the catcher's gear on saying, Gramps, let's go play ball. And it's just something I, I was just from, from jump street, that's all I ever wanted to do was play right. baseball. And and dad never pressured me one bit. He encouraged me to play. I played, right. you know, I played football as a kid. I played hoops. Uh, once I got deep into high school, I realized, you know, baseball, you know, and, and still was at that point. It was always my passion. Right. But I realized right. baseball was my ticket at that point, And I concentrated on that probably from my junior year, 17 years old on. And, you know, then I went on to my career, but I, I had such a cool childhood boogie. I mean, I had a dad, I got to go to the ballpark and, mm-hmm. and hang out, you mm-hmm. know, as a kid, I'm hanging out with Pete Rose and Steve Carlton and, and, and Greg Lazinski and Mike Schmidt. And that was just normal for me. And I'm looking right, at them going, right. one day I'm going to be you. Then dad gets traded to the angels. I'm hanging out with Rod Carew and Reggie Jackson, but that wasn't a big right. deal. Cause that's what I'm going to do. And I'll see you in a couple of years when I get drafted right. and come play. But it was never put on me. It was never. Gotcha. And I hear my dad talk about it to, to this day. And he said, you know, I was hoping Brett liked the game and, and kind of mm-hmm. followed in my footsteps. But I was going to support him in anything he did. And and that's what my childhood was like. But you're right. And, and I tell kids this, too, you know, all the time is if you don't have that deep burning passion, you're going to get run over. 
because there's too many right. people out there that have it. So, so uh, yeah, this is this is all interesting stuff. Very cool. I just yeah. think that you have to allow the kid to feel what he wants to feel from the sports, and and it was great for me because I couldn't outrun my daddy till I got to be 16 years old, and I couldn't beat my father and nothing. So he was like my barometer <laughs> you know what i'm saying yeah. and him and my brother and the kids in the neighborhood he used to get off work in his work boots and beat us in basketball and everything <laughs> so so he would send us home crying and my mother would like, like to get mad at him he was like well, no they gotta be tough you know so he never saw me play baseball until i got to dodger Stadium because he worked and and it was my mom who was the team mother and drove me all around and all of the different places so that it was kind of bittersweet for my dad to finally see me at the at the height, but he saw me at, at, at the Dodger Stadium. But all of my high school career, he never said he seen me play one game of basketball, and he was like, "I didn't really know you could play like that because he worked." And but but all the way through my childhood, he was there prior to me going and playing professionally and. and the, the, all of those things. So I was, once I felt like I was able to beat him or compete with my dad, kids my age had no chance. That's, that is awesome. That, that's, that's fun stuff right there. Uh, all right. So we're going to jump forward. Your senior year, you get drafted in the eighth round, 1980, Cincinnati Reds. Go off to the minor leagues and you make your debut in 94, 20 year, 21 years old. And I know nowadays, you know, especially in the last few years, it's we've got a lot of young, talented players out there. But 21, uh, when you broke in, that, that wasn't common. You know, usually it was 23, 24, we get to the big leagues, the guys that are going to make right. a career out of this. But you got there as 21. Uh, what was that like for you? All of a sudden, 21 years old, you're the big leagues. Actually, people might take this wrong and stuff, but it was a relief for me. And I'm going to lead you into that because the 83, I played half a season double and a half a season tripling. I was in Waterbury, Connecticut, and then was up in Indianapolis, in, in, uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. So I combined for like 23 homers and 70 steals between double A and triple A, right? And so everybody, Skeeter Barnes and Dallas Williams and the, all of the veterans that was older than me was having phenomenal years. They was already in AAA hitting 300 and stuff. And everybody went into the office, got called to Cincinnati. And so it was like seven guys got called to the office and my manager called me in the office and he told me, he said, he wanted, he said, the Reds wanted me to go to instruction league and work on button. It's a true story. <laughs> and, Cause I led off all to all the way through high school, little league. Cause I could run and steal bases. Everybody led me off. So they said they wanted me to go to instruction league and work on bunny. And so you're talking about a mixed emotion and a roller coaster ride because I felt like, yeah, this was my time. It wasn't that I went up and played in 83 really wasn't important. It was to get my feet wet because I felt like I had earned it because I was the number one prospect in the organization and all the above. So I go to instructional league, and for two weeks I bunted every ball. I didn't swing at a pitch. I don't care what the situation was, 3-2, bases loaded, I was bunting. So the farm director, Jim Hoffman, got mad at me and was like, no, AD, we want you to play. I said, no. They told me they wanted me to work on bunting, so I'm bunting. 
mind you, it, it was a prize for winning the structure league. You know, that was a big thing if y'all won it. And so we wasn't winning because I was bunting, so it ended up sending me home after two weeks because I bunted <laughs> every ball. So going from that to then going to uh, come in the next year to, in spring training, I get pulled off the bus on the way to the airport. Uh, so, because I think I hit like seven homers in spring training and everybody's telling me, Bernie, so, you know, because see, Bernie had the machine gun. I don't know if he did it on you guys, but back then he had a, a, a toy machine gun. So when they was going to send you down, Bernie had to come get you. So Bernie had a toy, toy machine gun. So when he looked at you, he'd go, and, and then that made you have to go see the message because you was going to get cut. So Bernie would come around the back in Tampa and he looked at me like, no, you ain't going. And, and I'd be like, oh my God. Huh. Wow. So now we get to the the bus. I'm in my suit and the whole nine y'all getting ready to go north. And they come get me off the bus. Said that they couldn't send a guy down, so I had to go down. So I had a lot of mixed emotions about when I should have got there. So then when I finally get there, and now all this that happened when I finally get there, Bernie don't know I'm coming. So my first at bat, I had no name or number on my jersey. Off of Joaquin Andrew, I hit a ground ball in the hole. The Ozzy backhanded threw me out, and all I heard was, welcome to the big leagues, kid. <laughs> I was like, this wow. league is tough, because that's the base hit in AAA. You know what I'm saying? That's so, right. Those shortstops, they're, they're a step quicker up here. Yeah. Yeah. So so I was I was excited, but I didn't call my mom because I thought something was going to happen until I got there and stuff. You know what I'm saying? Because once you've had something been scratched from you or you feel disappointment in something, you kind of like become apprehensive about certain things and stuff. So when Gene Dusan called me that night, I couldn't sleep, but I didn't call nobody because I was like, I ain't going to tell nobody in case they didn't change their mind. So I was glad when I got there, um, but I just wanted to make sure that it was real. But that experience in my era, and you know from being a part of that as a kid, seeing these, uh, and, and, and to see your dad and Smitty and Mazinski and, and Steve Carlton opening day, and I'm sitting there saying, well, hitting a home run on Steve Carlton opening day, was phenomenal and 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 just to see all the guys that you watched I quickly had to transcend that into being a fan to now be like okay I gotta show these guys I belong here I ain't gonna be here so I kind of quickly had to not watch and admire and clap for him sometimes be like no Sam I can't clap I can't root for him I'm on another day so it was so many emotions going on until I finally caught my stride and then they started asking me for autographs and different things of that nature. So that's when I knew I belonged. And, uh, 86, you kind of, you know, I look at that, I, I look at your career and 86 is the year you kind of arrive. You hit 27 homers drive in 71. But the thing that leaps out to me is the 80 stolen bases. And for, for those of you out there listening to the Boone podcast, there's a lot made of the 30, 30 club and 2020 club. And, and when I was growing up, I thought, you know, I was never a base dealer. So I kind of dismissed it as that what's the big deal. And as I played more and, and, and got more experience and was more of a veteran player, I had a few years where I snuck up there boogie and I, and I stole 16 right. or 17. Right. 
Right. And I had some big years in Seattle and I was driving in 141. Mm -hmm. I hit 37 homers and I stole 17. And I'm telling you, I felt like I stole 100 bases because when you're running around and you're hitting homers, it's tiring to steal bases. So I had a newfound respect for the guys that go 20, 20, 30, 30. And then I'm looking at your numbers. You're going 27, 80. Yeah. That just doesn't happen. You know, the next year in 87, you hit 37 homers. You drive in 100, you steal 50. Yeah. Pretty much from 87 to 89, you're one of the best players in the game. People are comparing you to Willie Mays. Uh, yeah. Tell me about that, the, the stolen bases and the power combo and how special that is. Well, I never really looked at it as special. I always looked at it as playing the game. And whatever tool you had to play the game to win, you utilized it. And and I knew that the stealing bases was a tool of mine since I was a kid. I didn't slide until I got the pro ball. The only time I slid was when I hit the ball. The, all of my stolen bases, it, it was funny because I would just run and then stop. But the, I started playing uh, Larry Barton because you used to have a winner team, and that's when all of the Reds, like Joe Price and Mike Lacoste and Frank Pastore, all the California guys, uh, played there. So I started playing with the Reds winter league team uh, at 15 years old. And, and I could only use wood bat. They wouldn't let me use aluminum. I was a shortstop. And, and so I started, we would play USC, UCLA, uh, Pepperdine. We would play all the top colleges in Orange Coast, uh, 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 Cal State Fullerton, Cal State Fullerton, JC. We was playing. I would get in almost 300 at best because you played up every weekend. And Larry really made me start to slide because he would pinch run for me. And he would pinch run me. So I would slow down to slide. Once they start making me slide foot first, I would slow down and I would get thrown out. And I can remember playing at Loyola Marymount, and I made all three outs at second base. Great jumps, and I could run, but I didn't know which leg. You know how you never know which leg to slide on or how to slide and try to pop up, and I was sliding too soon and not get to the bag and stuff. I was just real green with doing that from stealing bases. Now, when I got a hit to, to steal a double, I would just pop up right into the bag. So I started learning how to do that. So that was always part of what I did. Um, but then when I got to the big leagues, they tried to turn me into a choppy, hit the ball on the ground type of guy and run because I was stealing so many bases and I was so fast. Uh, Vern Rapp was my manager. And the best thing for me, and I talk about this even in our organization, that sometimes we have to get out of the way and allow the kid to flourish. Because Pete Rose, when he came over as a player manager, I was leading off one day and I popped the butt up to the pitcher. And as soon as I came to the dugout, he said, what was that? I said, well, Hank skipped third base and was back. He said, let me tell you something, son. When you can hit that ball up in the red seats, I know you can steal bases, but when you can get me a run that quick, I don't ever want you to bunt again. He said, from now on, every time you bunt, it's $100. Now, mind you, the minimum was $32,000. So I ain't have $100 to get nobody. It wasn't no millions and all this. So then two days later, he moved me to fifth. 
and that's when you started to see the power and the speeds and and I stole 63 bases in 86 after the All-Star break because Nick Asaski was there, Gary Reedus, Eddie Milner, Dave Parker, Cesar Daniel. So we was, everybody was fighting for playing time until Pete said, you know what, you finna take off. And he gave me that chance. Vern uh, uh, Rapp, when I first came to the big leagues, they didn't really allow me to do my thing. So, uh, once I vowed that once I got able to do my thing, I had to show everything I had. So stealing bases, defense, all of that was important to me. And you were the inventor. And, and you don't know, I don't even know if I've ever told you this story, but you were the first one to wear those high tops. And that you had yes. high tops before there was high tops. You and Bill Buck. Yes. Yes. And I, and I got to A-ball. I signed out of USC. And I remember talking to the Nike people and going, hey, I need those Eric." Eric Davis shoes. They're like, well, <laughs> you know, those are those are special made a ball yeah. player. And I said, well, special make Boone some. Right. <laughs> and they said, all right. And they made them for me. You no, know, I whipped them out. It was like they, they charged me like 250, 300, but, but it didn't matter right. at the time. I had to have those. And I remember I was in a ball in the Carolina league, walking around with these high tops and no other minor leaguers had them. Right. I thought, I thought I was it, man. I said, Hey, here it is. Oh, come to find out. Then high tops became available. Nike started right. making the mask. Right. But uh, that's how I started. Cause but I was you know, Marge uh, called me into the office behind him because everything was good. We couldn't wear, uh, the red shoes until 87. <laughs> we had to wear, when I first came to Big Leagues, we wore all black. And you remember when you saw the big red machine, they had all black. You couldn't have a white stripe or nothing on. So we couldn't get shoes. When I'm in the minor league, we have to buy our own shoes. Even when I got to the Big Leagues, we have to buy our own shoes because nobody could see the, the logo. So when I get the high tops, I had some bone chips in my ankle from the turf. And, and uh, Larry Starr, who was our trainer, because uh, I should get my ankles taped and all that kind of stuff. And he was like, you know what, man? Did you wear uh, low tops when you played the basketball? Did you ever twist your ankles? I said, no, I always wore high tops. He said, well, what do you think about wearing high tops? And I was like, man, I never thought about it. So that's where the idea came from. And then Mars shot when I got him. She thought I was trying to make a cultural statement or something. <laughs> but I needed some... And Larry Starr had to come up to her office to explain why I was wearing the high tops. She was, because you know how Mars was, she wanted to know everything about anything and she didn't want nobody to be different from what the rules and regulation was that, at that time. So she was real scarce of anything that I did. Anything. Right. right. And you, and you talk about margin and, uh, Wow. I just remember when I came to the Reds, I came to the Reds at 94 from the Mariners. And, and I remember, you know, you get your bats in spring training. When you need another bat order, you, you put an order. And I remember Bernie Stowe going, Booney over here, Marge likes to uh, turn in your crack bats when you get another dozen. Yeah. I'm kind of going, wait a minute. Oh, I gave it was crazy. Crack. I gave that crack back to that kid in the stands. Like, what, do you want me to go get it back just so I can get some wood for tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> but that that was a but whole. You have to turn in your hat if you was gonna get a new hat. You had to turn in your old hat. I, I mean, she had so much. It was one time we couldn't throw the balls into the stands and batting practice. It was just always something with Marge. It was always something, always something. 
Oh, it was, <laughs> that could be a whole other hour. Whole other hour there. Yeah, yeah. All right. So 1990, uh, you lead the Reds to the playoffs. And in an unlikely scenario, you sweep the big bad A's. You got the Bash Brothers and Ricky and Dave Stewart. And you guys sweep them in four. One of the one of the biggest I don't necessarily because I know you. I talked to Lark. I had Lark on the podcast. Uh and he said everybody we were the underdog to the entire world except for us. We didn't think we were the underdog, and you ended up proving not. But I want to talk about uh, that was a big turning point for you because you end up on a play in the outfit lacerating your kidney. Tell me, yeah. tell me that whole story. What happened? Well, you have to know the story leading up to the story. I, I tore a ligament in my knee still in third base in Philadelphia. They had watered it down really, really high. And, and, and when I slid in, my back knee stuck. So I end up carrying a ligament, uh, but I don't get surgery. So if you notice that year, I wore a big knee brace from my high tops all the way up to my thigh. And that's why I was the only reason that I was in left field, which you know what I'm saying, was because right. of the torn ligament in my knee. That's the only reason that I was playing left field because Billy Hatcher was the left fielder. I was the center field. And Billy so, had to move over to center for that series. Or for, for that second half of the year. Yes, yes. So so that was the reason that I was out of position in, anyway. But I, I'm going to make a play, and, and, and I had jammed my shoulder at the last, probably like the last week of the season, running into the wall. So I'm telling myself, okay, I see the play, Willie McGee, hits one, but it don't slice. So it's staying true. So I'm diving to catch it, but I'm telling myself, don't roll on your right side to catch it because of my shoulders. So I tell myself to roll to the left side, but when I hit, my elbow went up under my rib cage and that's a puncture my kidney. So, so I, Drop the ball. If you watch the play, I pick the ball up and I throw it all the way into Larkin backwards. Okay. So now that I'm getting up and, and, uh, I, I don't know if it was Hal Baines or somebody else was getting ready to hit, but in the midst, the whole scene slowed down because now the pain done hit me when they're getting ready to pitch. And I'm actually trying to call timeout to call Barry to call timeout to come get me because this ain't good. Something is not good. But nothing is coming out. And thank God he hit a fly ball to, to Paul, I think, or they did something. So I'm getting ready to lead off the fourth inning. Uh, excuse me, I'm getting ready to lead off the second inning because I was at, at, the, uh, the, at the plate when Hatcher got thrown out. So I sit down to grab, grab my breath, and when I get ready to get up, I couldn't get up. So I called the trainer and I'm like, something wrong. And that's when you can see the hot, the things of them, them taking me up them stairs in Oakland. You know how the clubhouse is up almost three flights of stairs in Oakland. Right. So I'm going up to these stairs and, I, and, and the pain is just really enormous now. 
but I don't know what's happening. So what they do is I seen doctor come down there and he's telling me with this and he don't really know what I did. I don't know how to lacerated my kidney. So he asked me to use the, uh, to ask me to take a piss. He said, you got to use the bathroom. I said, yeah, I got to use the bathroom. He said, well, take this cup so that we can see if there's any blood. And I pissed a big cup full of nothing but blood. And it scared me. And that's when I started crying. Because anytime you urinate red, straight blood, no urine is coming out. It's just straight blood. So I'm knowing something is wrong. So it was crazy. So how they took me... <laughs> Now, I got 50 people from, from, from L.A. and my mom, they were, everybody. So my wife and my mom, them come down and they're going to, to take me to the hospital. So they put me in a van. I don't even get in an ambulance. They put me in a van, <laughs> put me in the back of a van with my mom and my wife and they lay me down. And it seemed like we go for 50 minutes only. And I don't know what hospital we end up. It seemed like we passed. But now, mind you, I got a police escort. Right? But his siren ain't on. <laughs> we stopping at lights trying to get on the freeway and everything. So we going past and now to know my mother is to know that I'm a I'm a mama's boy, I'm the baby. And she's just at her wits because she's seeing what's happening. And she's and she letting everybody have it. So we get close to the <laughs> we get close to the hospital and he put the siren on just to get in the hospital. That might have took us 40 minutes. I done pissed a big gut full of blood and it take us 35, 40 minutes to get to the hospital, right? So when I get to the hospital, they check me in and stuff. And once they check me in, that's all I knew. And, and the next thing I knew, I was in the bed with an epidural in my back. And, and, Larry, I want to say Larry and somebody came by there the next day and said we had won, but I wasn't really in in and out. And they left. After that, they left. After we won it, they was gone. And so my family and everybody is still at the hotel. Mind you, I'm in the hospital for 14 days in Oakland. Now, they was I was told, the doctor told me I was about Oh, excuse me, 45 minutes away from them having to take my kidney out. But he said a blood clot formed around my kidney and stopped the bleeding. And that's the only thing that saved him from having to take my kidney out. So I stayed there and, and he, he, he said, if you took a tomato and you just threw it on the ground, that's how my kidney looked. Just from that elbow, he said, I could dive a million times and never do it again. But at that time and that move, it was it was for that to happen, and so um, they put me on the plane. No, prior to that, they asked me, "Would the owners fly me back?" Because they said, "Eric, if you go back there, because I was going to send a hospital another two weeks, and they didn't want me there for a whole month." And so I was like, "Yeah, they'll fly me back. Why not? I'm not. I'm that dude, and we just won." So. My agent called Bob Quinn, and Bob Quinn said, you make $3 million, let him fire his own plane. And I was like, huh? He said, yeah, that's what you got to do. So I called Marge, and she said she didn't know nobody with this and this and this. So ultimately, I end up chartering the plane and sending her the bill. And that's when all of the rhetoric behind me and Marge and Bob Quinn and 
And uh, ultimately, that's why I got traded in the 91, after 91 season, was because of how they knew they treated me. And, and Lou and all those guys after the fact. And me and Lou are friends now, but he always tell me how, how much of a mistake he made in all of that situation. Because there was no rules on how you handle with stuff. And I didn't stop, only I didn't stop urinating blood until February like 15th and we opened camp February 18th. And I didn't do any rehab or anything. And I want to say it set me back almost four years. Almost four years. So, wow. So you go from coming off the field, not being able to get up and go hit. Piss and blood, hospital. That 90s team, that great team, wins a World Series. They probably had a parade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're, sit- you're still sitting in L.A., and they're okay. telling you, you make $3 million, fly yourself back. I, w- I, yeah. I want to know, when you sent Marge the bill, what happened? Did it get paid? Yes, he paid it. But All see, right. by that time, it had gotten so much press. Right. Um, it became a from thing. What they had, uh, it, it had became Jesse Jackson came to my house, Al Sharpton came to my house, and NAACP came to my house. It had became so much more than me um, because Marge had already called me a million-dollar N-word at that time uh, because I was the highest-paid player in the whole state of Ohio history. I was making a million six. And she said, that's my million dollar guy. So it was already racism behind me and Marge. And now you leave me in a hospital and you don't want to. It was just so much brewing. So now I'm getting all this. And mind you, I'm still only like 27 years old. You know what I'm saying? And I'm saying, well, wait a minute. This ain't the fairy tale after winning. You know what I'm saying? How am I into all this? But it was, it was, it was crazy because. Nobody knew. And then the next year, after going into spring training, I'm playing. I come back the first day I play. We don't have no strength and conditioning people. We don't have weight. We don't have none of that. I didn't do no therapy on my abs or nothing. I went from tearing my kidney to urinating blood to picking up a wood bat swinging. Yeah, let's go. Yeah. So all of that in the midst of coming back in 91, which the doctor told me it was going to be anywhere between 14 and 18 months before I'm here. I came back after three months and, and it devastated my body to the point where I couldn't even hit a ball over the fence in batting practice. And, and, and here's where Lou says he made the mistake because he thought that, 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 Something else was wrong and not the kidney. See, nobody wanted to take responsibility of me having a torn kidney and not rehabbing. Because back then, the, the only trainer we had was Larry Starr. That was it. We didn't have no medical staff and no trainers and no strength and conditioning people and all of that. We didn't have none of that. And so I firmly believe that Larry wouldn't have done me like that on purpose because he didn't know what to do. Nobody had ever torn a kidney playing baseball. Right. Now, 
it's protocols behind all that. Now the league won't let you play if you hurt too bad. You got to pass a certain protocol. So you got so many different things now. But the only thing that bothered me was I tried to play up, up until June. And I just couldn't do it no more. So I took looting them something is wrong and stuff. So I hired my own physician and he tells him not to show. We meeting with the brass and the brass tell me, okay, ED, we're going to put you on a disabled list. And we're going to try to figure it out. But they tell me, Lou Pinella, them tell me, don't say nothing to the press, but they go make a statement saying they put me on a disabled list because I'm chronically tired. They still ain't admitted my kidney is is the problem. They said, I'm going to disable this because I'm chronically tired. So I blew a gasket and, and I MF'd all of them and, and I ridiculed all of them. And uh, that's when Lou traded me doing that off season. So How would- it, it was all behind that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it had to be after what you went through and especially the year. I mean, that's a big year for Cincinnati. I mean, I know they had the big red machine. Oh, yeah. When you guys won in 90, that was a big deal. I remember. Oh, it was huge. I, yeah. I remember watching that. And for, for that, you know, the, at that time, you were their main star. You were the big boy in that lineup. Yes. Right. That, right. Everything you went through and you're coming back, it had to be kind of, wow, uncomfortable to say the least when you come into spring training in 91. I mean, how, how was it from just, you know, you, you talked about Lude, you talked about the Marge thing. How about your teammates? Was it? Was oh, it they like- was angry. Everybody was angry because they knew what was really going on. And they knew my leadership. See, I was there before any of them got there. Even though I was, I was a couple years older in experience. I was way ahead of Larkin and Dibble and Sabo and O'Neill and all these guys. Once we traded Parker to Oakland for the Jose Rio, it became my team. And, and, and so even though I'm still in the same age bracket as you guys, the experience, I'm way behind. I'm way past you guys. So I, I, I took over the leadership role. So anything that transpired came through me. So those guys was going, they was going to tear something up for me uh, because that's the respect I had. And that's how I treated those guys. And they all knew that it was wrong and how it was, it was going down and things of that nature. But uh, me and Lou ultimately had a conversation even when, but the conversation came when I got to Baltimore and you guys was in uh, Seattle. Right. And, and, and actually Rick Griffin was my first trainer when I was in Eugene. So that's how far me and Rick Griffin go back. Oh yeah. <laughs> and him and Greg Ridoff was my first manager. So that's how that was. And that's when he apologized to me. He said, man, I was, I was totally wrong about that whole scenario. And, and, I accepted his apology and, and we've been friends ever since. And we was always friends, but, but I just didn't like how he did that. I was like, you taking a side and you should know me because I just almost killed myself on this field for you. Yeah. And you're going to let them do me like that. So that's why me and him, that's why I got, I got at it with him uh, from a player standpoint. If you don't play, I ain't going to be too mad at you because you don't know that union. But when you are a player and you see another player who 
like yourself who plays hard all the time and then I don't back you for, for some other reason for, for them, nah, I'm not going to ever do that. So I felt like he crossed that line as a player that had played and didn't support me when he knew I gave everything to the team. So I had to let him have it. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. Would I have let him have it? Of course. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, you let him have it. <laughs> no, no, yeah, well, yeah. that's... Only, only, only would have let him have it quick. Oh, I'd let him be... And that's probably why Dibble... Actually, that's probably why Dibble fought him. It, it had all built up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's probably yeah, why yeah. Dibble charged him. It had all built up and shit. You know what I'm saying? So I remember. He had to release some steam. Yeah. Shoot, I had my own. I came up with Lou, and and man, you talk about going to blow. Me and him almost went to blows five times when I came up in Seattle. Mm-hmm. This was happening. This mm-hmm. was in 1993. And then fast forward to the 01 when I go back to to Seattle for that next tenure for me. Uh, it was a different ball game. You know, Lou was mm-hmm. Lou was my favorite at that time. So yeah, we had. A I think he had mellowed out, and he had saw the pressures of 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 winning, he had, he had really subdued himself. And he was still feisty with the umpires and stuff, but he seemed like he enjoyed it more. He enjoyed the job more than he did the early part of his career. Right. And, and that's just fact. I mean, that story right there and that time, uh, I don't know if it, well, I, I'm sure a lot of people have heard that, but, but hearing it for me, that's, that's a pretty fascinating story and, and big at the time for you. Like you said, you're only 27 yeah, I couldn't imagine sitting in that hospital room being being that main guy in that lineup. My team just won the World Series, and I'm like, guys, I'm here. If you want to come over and get me, take me back on the plane with you. That, but oh, you know, it was funny because I didn't know we had won for like five days and stuff because I was incapacitated. They just kept me on morphine because I had an epidural, and and so I'd be in and out, and I'd see my mom and my wife and them, and I'd be up a little while, and then I'd go out. And I'd be up a while. So I didn't really start coming around consistently for about a week. And and then that's when I really know we had won the World Series and we had beat them in four and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't I didn't really know the initial when I got there. No, I didn't have no idea. Wow. No. So we fast forward a little bit. So after 91, and you mentioned uh, – a lot of a lot of the reasons behind you moving on to LA uh, was everything that transpired in that '90 season. You get reunited with Straw, I remember, uh, and you had yeah. some injuries. And uh, man, I've been uh, operated on thirteen about- times. <laughs> huh? I said I've been operated on thirteen times. Yeah, how was it that? Was it was amazing. It was great, you know. Um, to being able to play with Daryl and, and to play at home. But I, I tell people this all the time. I wouldn't have never went home because home is not for everybody. I knew too many people. And, and it, it wasn't a, a good atmosphere for me at that time in my life. Um, because I was still in the, in the, in the legacy making. I was still about the game. And I knew being at home wouldn't have been just about the game. It would have been about everybody else in the neighborhood and the kids and the, and the, and the high schools and all the people that I grew up with. It became more of that. Um, 
So what I did was I bought 12 season tickets. I bought season tickets for my family. And then I bought some for them to give to the other family members when they wanted to come so that they couldn't just call me every day and be like, can I come to the game? Cause I didn't want that. But the games that Daryl and myself played together, I think we might've been like 36 and five or 36 and six or something like that. Uh, we just couldn't stay on the field. I had triple surgery. I had surgery on my hand, uh, my wrist and my shoulder. I dove after a ball. Uh, Gastar hurt his back, so Tommy moved me from left to right. The same night, Daryl hurt his back. I blew my shoulder out, making a diving backhand catch in right center field. You know, so it was just one thing after the other. And I'm still trying to heal from from the kidney. The swing is – it. So some days it feel like I got it, then other days it was like it was nothing there. You know, you feel like it because you know when you hit a ball and you be like, oh yeah, and then they catch it at the wall and you be like, damn, I know I hit that ball better than that. Then you start looking at the flag and the flag yeah. blowing out, and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we used to call. Know, Wait a minute, I, I used to go out of the, yeah, the flag ain't blowing in, out. the flag is blowing out, and it get to the wall. <laughs> You're like, well, damn. Wait a minute. Something is not right. So I dealt with that for almost two and a half years. That'll weigh on your psyche too. When that ball, you know, it's gone and it's not gone. Man, it wasn't even close on it. And I was like, damn. So <laughs> what's really happening? <laughs> is that, have I lost it or this or that? And it was, so I had to go through all of that. But what saved me uh, was going to Detroit and then having a neck on ran into the wall in Fenway Park and messed my neck up and then uh the, we had the uh the strike in ninety four. So I had surgery in in ninety four on my neck. And honestly I didn't have any uh reservation of coming back to play because my body was just beat I was just beat up mentally. Just physically beat up mentally. And the only reason I came back as I told Lark that if they made the playoffs, I would come watch. Because I didn't go to no games. And they end up 95, they swept the Braves and then they played the Dodgers. <clears throat> and uh, they came to Dodger Stadium, so I came to the game and I was on the field and Mark saw me. And she was like, hey, you look great. Are you, you're not going to play anymore? I said, no, I don't think I'm going to play anymore. She said, well, you need to try if you want if you want to play out, I would love for you to come back and come back to Cincinnati. So I was like, well, shit, well, wait a minute. Hold on now. All right. And then I said, okay, well, give me a, a month to work out. Mind you, I had not done anything in almost a year and a half. I didn't pick up a bat. I didn't train. I didn't do nothing. So I started training. And the first time I took batting practice, everything went right back to where it was like before I go for that ball. My hands were in the right spot. My stride was there. The whip was there. And I was like, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, I've always had challenges and trying to figure out things and, and, and adversity where it was always somebody that was trying to prohibit me. And that, and that 96 season, because I remember – I got there in 94. We had Kevin Mitchell. He's, he's, he has a huge year. You know, he's kind of that rock in the middle of our, of our lineup. And that was, like you said, it was the strike year. Mitchell leaves. 
We bring in Ronnie Gant, who's coming off that motorcycle accident, you know, and his brave stardom. We get him for one year. He's essentially comeback player of the year. Then it comes to 96, and here Mm -hmm. comes Eric Eric the Red back back home to Cincinnati. And what happens? Comeback player of the year. And we're looking at Jim Bowden going, how how are you pulling this many rabbits out of the hat? How are you this (laughs) right this many times in a row? How how fulfilling right. is that for you right. after all this you'd been through, you know, to this point? Well, it was, it was the once again, I, 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 had, I had mixed emotions because when I signed, David Johnson was the manager. Okay. Then, for whatever reason, Morris don't bring him back because his girlfriend and what all that happened, Ray Knight take over. Okay, now, Demir Ray had a fight in 86. So I'm looking at this dude. So if you can remember, Ray did everything for me not to make the team. I wasn't on the field with y'all. I was on the backside with with the guys you know going to get cut. Because uh, remember the boy Kelly came from Atlanta, was a center fielder. Mike Kelly. Mike Kelly and Vince Coleman was the left fielder because Vince Coleman came over there and Reggie Sanders was the right fielder. That's exactly right. So he did everything he could to cut me because of the fight that we had when I played. So I knew that that once he got the managerial job, it was going to be tough. But just my inner strength of me being able to read people, I saw what he was trying to do. And I didn't let him stop the journey um, because because the first part of spring training, he took me on the on the road trips and batted me ninth and shit like that. I can remember going to uh, Dunedin and play the, the Jays, and I didn't even play. He put me in the ninth inning for defense. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I'm sitting <laughs> He was doing stuff like that. So if you're doing that to me after all I've accomplished at this level, I know it's personal. So I saw what he was doing. He showed his hand too soon. So I knew that Reggie and Mike Kelly and Vince couldn't play with me. So I just let him do what he did, and I just kept raking. And I just kept raking. And uh, then Pete Shurik and... And all the guys smiling them start saying, Oh Lord, I need E D in center field. What y'all doing? Y'all tripping. So he's that's when you know that the uh that, that everybody knew that I was supposed to be out there. So because once the pitchers start complaining, Mike Kelly them couldn't play. And and so all of that was going on and stuff. But once I knew what his game plan was and and then he, he wasn't gonna stop my journey. And he didn't. But he damn sure tried to now. He tried to. Yeah, and it resulted in comeback player of the year. And I remember yeah. that year. Yeah. And that's the year we yeah. met. And, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, and you know, uh, and the more we talk, it, it, I see a lot because when I came to Cincinnati, now I was a young player. This is before you came back in 96. 
and mm-hmm. and I see how big of a you know because when I first got there I didn't know Eric Davis I knew Eric Davis right. but I didn't know him right. but I'd heard I'd right. heard the stories and I can see just in our talk right now how much you rubbed off on your teammates and, and right. how much right. how much Barry looked to you you know you were the guy that Barry mm-hmm. looked to and then when you left. Mm-hmm. Barry took on your role and, and it comes through so vividly in talking to you today. Uh, I right. see where Barry got it. Barry got it from Boogie. Right. You know, Boogie yeah. got it from mm-hmm. somebody else, you know, and, and that's right. how this right. game is. And that's how this brotherhood is in, in the game of right. baseball. Absolutely. That, that is Absolutely. And I mean, it doesn't stop for you. You go from there, 97, you get colon cancer. Yeah, at this point, right. uh, Eric, you got to just be going, all right, what's next? <laughs> I don't, hey, man, it was just like, it was one thing. And, and I mean, <laughs> I'm just on the ropes. Tremendous stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm leading the American League, and I'm in, I'm, I'm, I'm in like 390, man, in May. Just, just, just bullet after bullet after bullet, homers and stuff like that. And we're in Cleveland, and I just hit a triple. And I score on a sacrifice fly, and I kind of collide with Sandy. And uh, brush it off, I score. And I'm sitting down once again. The third out, I can't get up. The pain hit me just like that once again. So they take me out and they run in Texas on me and they don't find us. So they give me some pain pills and I play the next day. But I'm feeling sluggish and I'm saying something ain't right because now the bat, I can't whip the bat and stuff. So I get through that game. And so we go from Cleveland to New York and we had a day game. And I played a day game and I'm sitting back home at the hotel and now the pain is really excruciating. So I call a trainer. They put me on the train from Baltimore, from New York to Baltimore. And the paramedics pick me up from the train station and take me to University of Maryland Hospital. I'm there for eight days. But they tell me that I have an abscess, abscess in my stomach, but they can't tell me how it got there. So I'm saying, okay, what is the abscess? It's bacteria that build up. It's a, it's a man. So I'm saying, okay, well, how did he get there? They can't tell me. Nobody can tell me how this mass gets in my body. So thank God. But what they did was they put a, a catheter in my stomach and tried to drain it overnight. So whatever they pull out, they pull out. And it was like, well, it's not shrinking and stuff like that. So luckily, I had a friend that was from D.C. And she told me, check out of the University of Maryland and go to John Hopkins. Mind you, I had been in that hospital for nine days. They was going to let me go back to play. The doctors. And so I go to John Hopkins that night. After I check out about 4 o'clock, I go right over to John Hopkins. The first test he did was a colonoscopy. Now, mind you, I'm in this hospital for eight or nine days, and they don't do a colonoscopy. The first one he do is a colonoscopy. And he said, man, you got a tumor the size of a grapefruit. We got to go get this. That was on Wednesday. And Friday, I, I had surgery because I waited for my mama and my wife to get from, from L.A. to Baltimore. And I had... Uh, surgery 
to remove a tumor the size of a grapefruit from my colon. And so from, from that aspect to, but you know, it was a relief because for not knowing for nine days, and that was the scariest part is when somebody tells you, you got something, you don't know how it got to That was more painful than me finding out when I found out it was like a relief from me. I was like, okay, thank God we can go get it. He was like, you ready? I said, yeah, we ready. So we wouldn't got it. And so I took 36 weeks of chemo. I, I came back in September and uh, played after that. And then uh, came back and won my second comeback for the year war. It hit 323, uh, uh, it hit 328, 28 bombs and 90 ribbies or something like that in 98. Yep. And, uh, now that was more gratifying than anything that I had ever done was to, uh, to come back from cancer. Cause when, you know, you talk about cancer, you talk about death. Yeah. And, and, and that's all we know is, is death from cancer. And to know all of that has transpired and everything that that was what happened and then to come from that. So that was my biggest accomplishment. Yeah, that's unbelievable. And by this by this time in your career, I mean, talk about going through some some trials and some tribulations. It, oh my God, that's unbelievable. You know, you you look at guys and you know they say, "Hey, you've never walked in his shoes." Well, you listen, yeah. <laughs> you listen, to, you listen to Boogie <laughs> on the Boone podcast. You'll see what it's like yeah. to, to be at the height, yeah. and to be at the bottom, and and the way you just kept getting yeah. up. And you move on. And I wrote a book called Born to Play. And I named it Born to Play because I felt at that time uh, all the things that I had gone through physically and mentally, and I was still here playing at a high level, that I was born to play this game. And that's why I chose that title. Born to Play. Mm -hmm. You're listening to the Boone Podcast. Check it out. Yep, that's the Boom Podcast. Uni, uni, uni. Uni, uni. So you go 99, 2000, <laughs> the Cardinals. You finish up with the Giants and you retire after mm -hmm. the 01 season. Yes. But 2004, Reds Hall of Fame calls Eric Davis being inducted in the Reds Hall of Fame. How'd that feel? It was huge. It, it was huge. Um, just knowing the history of that franchise and how many great, I didn't even know they had a Hall of Fame. Until they called me, I did not know they had a Hall of Fame. So, because prior to that, I don't, I don't even know when they resurrected it. I know they had it before, but we never went to a ceremony when I was playing here. So, I didn't even know that it existed. And, and once I started to realize the importance of the players, and I've always knew I'm a, I'm a baseball average. And so knowing how many Frank Robinson and Bobby Tolan and to Pete, to, to Ted Kazuski, to, uh, it was so many players that wore that uniform. And I mean, wore it with some, with some damage. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And had accomplished a lot of things. And to be a part of that was just mind blowing. This is my brother. I would say she was the most humble feeling I ever had. Biggest influence in your life, Eric? 
Outside of my father, probably Dave Parker. Um, because of the time that I was had, came to the big leagues and and the connection that we instantly had because of the things that he had gone through and he was still going through at that time. So because, you know, he was still dealing with that drug situation in Pittsburgh. And with him and Dale Vera and that big old drug thing that they had at that particular time, I can remember him telling me that if you ever, ever get any injuries, I have out in hand. And nobody outside of my daddy could ever tell me that and get away with it. But just his presence and his generality behind wanted to see me and adopt me as his son. Everything that I did and learned was from him. Just how to go about being a professional, how to do certain things, how to work, uh, how to talk to people, how to, how to treat people, how to not let people see you sweat, uh, how to be calm in the most difficult situation. Now, all of that I learned from him. Uh, on the baseball field, I learned it in life and stuff from my dad. But as a competitor, everything had to come from him. Well, Eric, and even back then, though, know, every every everybody raised you. Yeah, all the players. And you know, when you got to leave, people would talk to you, be like, "Boy, why are you swinging so hard? Boy, just do this and do that and do this and do that." So all of that was a part of my history and growing up. All of it. It's a, it's an absolutely fascinating story, um, Eric. I want to thank you so much for coming on today. This this is awesome, and and people are going to love this this Boone podcast for sure. What we do at the end of the Boone podcast is we bring in the voice of the Boone podcast, Dan Levy, to ask Eric a question from the fans. Dan, hello, Eric. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing okay. All right. This one comes from Jeff in good old Scottsdale, and he wants to know, growing up, who was the better b-ball player, you, Daryl Strawberry, or Byron Scott? I would give it to Byron Scott because he developed faster than I did uh, because when we played together when we was 11 years old all the way up, and he had a jump shot like you saw him with the Lakers, Spoonie. His jump shot was just like that when we was 11 or 12 years old. So he kind of had it fixated in his mind more than I did or Daryl probably. But uh, I would give it to him and stuff, but I wasn't far now. I wasn't far. <laughs> and the last one is, it's a bonus question from Todd from Anaheim. Do you think you could have made it to the NBA if that's the direction you were going to go? Hands down. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No question. All right. Yes. Well, Eric Davis, yes. thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We appreciate you jumping on. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you. Mailbag. All right, Brett, you know that sound. It's time to do the Brett Boone mailbag. Ready to dig in? Let's do it, Daddy. All right. Mark in Seattle. Brett, what is your favorite meal? If you were going to the chair, what would your last meal really be? I could go all over the map. Uh, I'm going to just, I'm going to keep it basic. I'm going to say Philly or New Jersey style pizza. Ooh, I thought you were a chicken wing guy. 
A what? I thought you were a chicken wing guy. I love if you cook it right. I love everything. <laughs> but I, you know, there's so many things I'd want to get. I just simplify it. Give me a, a back east thin crust pizza. Got it. That, that does sound about right. Okay, let's go back into the old mailbag and dig out number two. Brett, this one is from Mike in Phoenix. What is the best hitting tip anyone has ever given you? Let it rip. Let it rip. And that's what I always did. Oddly enough, uh, that's the exact same advice I give my son when he's got a stomachache. <laughs> Different let it rip, but I, I feel you, Dan. <laughs> let it rip. Do you remember who gave that to you? Was it your dad or was that a hitting coach? No, because, you know, especially when you get into in professional baseball, you know, you got so many people pulling at you from so many different angles that want to tell you uh, make changes. You have some guys that want to change it. The good guys let you be you and figure it out yourself. But the best guys, it's always when it, when we try to over oversimplify or over uh, analyze our swings, it's better to, to step back, clear your mind of everything, see that ball, and knock the crap out of it. All right. Well, that'll do it for the Brett Boone Mailbag, and that's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director, producer, and also the voice of the podcast. Executive producer is all handled by the one, the only, the man, Rich Herrera. Digital content gets taken care of by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends. And make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.